Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, my name is John Kennedy and welcome to part two of this special best of season nine, a season so good we had to split the best of into two. We're picking up where we left off in part one, continuing our look back at some of the highlights and our selection of memorable moments from the conversations we had across the last season. In this episode, you'll hear from Orla Gartland with Tom Stafford, Courtney Barnett with Stella Mazgower, John Hopkins, Chet Faker and Hiatus Coyote. But first, we turn to churches. Our conversation with Lauren Martin and Ian took us behind the scenes of Screen Violence, a record largely written and recorded remotely from different parts of the world. As well as having to compete with a large drill, the trio reflected on happy accidents and creative practices. But to start, we join Martin as he tells us how he borrowed a technique from the world of prog metal. I mean, I guess this is one interesting lesson that I learned from Meshuggah. Have you ever heard of the band Meshuggah? They're like a Scandinavian metal band. I, I don't know whether I have, actually. They're the craziest time signatures ever in music and a lot of it is actually free time but they're still very successful and I, I've felt like they're very successful because they figured out that no matter how crazy you get as long as the backbeat makes sense and as long as people can still shake their head to it and like enjoy it in a way that makes sense to them and they would do that with a stabilizing hi-hat that would just like run through as hi-hat and snare drum would be very very simple and all the craziness was going on around it I guess in some way this rhythm track was was influenced by that because you've got a kick drum that's all pushed. Out of context, that makes not a lot of sense. And you add a snare, it's like, okay, it still makes some sense, but I'm not necessarily dancing yet. But then once you add these stabilizing hi-hats, you're like, oh, this is a beat that I can understand. So you can get crazy and dance around it and do what we did, which is like all this crazy stuff. But it still makes sense. It still sounds like a basic drum beat at the end of the day, even though that we know under the hood that there's, there's all sorts of madness going on, you know? When we were comping the vocals, I was like, because like, there was only one take of it, I thought, is this meant to be here or not? So I was like, fuck it, I'll leave it in. And then uh, our manager had listened to it and said yeah but you're going to put that bit at the end you're going to put that right at the start of the song as well aren't you and we were like what what do you mean and then we listened to it and we we're like of course that's the way that the song should open and then we kind of distorted it yeah this one this is lauren there you go <laughs> that's lauren and then we apply the tune we apply the distortion uh, space echo and then the little micro shift also by sound toys shouts out sound toys <laughs> use all their plugins I write something most days. I try and abide by that. Wow, that's a really big drill outside. Sorry, guys. But I try and abide by that. Write something 
even if it's just five minutes sitting down but most of the time it won't be songs it won't be lyrics and I think that those things are really helpful to look back on when it comes time to write lyrics because then I know that I've purged out a lot of things that do have meaning to me and then it makes it easier to pull things out and put them into the three and a half minute context I don't know I think that's the balance between filling up the cup with ideas but also trying to find consistency I used to subscribe to the idea that you can't write anything unless the muse has visited you but I also don't think the muse will visit you if you don't put in your 10,000 hours to build up your stamina and your learning and your understanding so yeah I think that's always helpful for me to have a bit of time so that when we come in to work I have ideas of what we want to write about because if we learn anything from demos that didn't make it onto records it's that technically we can write a kind of paint by numbers churches song and lyrically that can be done but those aren't the best ones and there's a reason why those ones don't lyrically they don't make it to the end because it doesn't mean as much you know that's my theory underpinning the whole drum track is a live drum track the if you take the main programming out Sounds like that. Not the world's biggest drum sound, deliberately. It's supposed to be there for a feeling. You know, the way that like Depeche might use drums or whatever, just to kind of humanize it somewhat. But at the end of the day, the programming is still driving the car. So when you put that programming in, together with the live drums, Something about symbols, eh? Like a, a live symbols live do symbol something. And yep. it just really brings something. But if I'm now then, as I'm about to do, switch out the live drums, no live drums. It's like, oh wow, okay, that was actually doing a lot <laughs> of the heavy lifting, but I didn't realize it because it was subliminal. And then context of the song. Bye bye live drums. It's actually a big part of the sound. One of the tricks that I have and we have in the locker that I actually learned from Steve Mack, who is a very famous producer, very successful producer in London, and a lovely man. And he said, always have your day one demo in the session always have the thing that you got excited about in the very beginning, always have that really close to hand and make sure no matter how much you develop a piece of music, no matter how much you, how far you take a song, that it still retains that initial burst of excitement. Keep asking yourself, have I lost what I loved about it in the very beginning? Mm. And sometimes that happens as you go along. And that's usually the point at which we'll go, okay, it's time to roll back. Some sound advice there from Martin of Churches. Next up, we turn to Orla Gartland and producer Tom Stafford, who reflect on the performances, plugins, and people crucial to the sound of Orla's debut album, Woman on the Internet, as well as stories of their time at Middle Farm Studios and lessons learned from in-house engineer and all-round guru Pete Miles. The pair take us back to the very beginning and the first fumblings of the track Over Your Head. Yeah. Um. Yeah, 
lyrics like kind of aren't there and that's the, where the verse melody started out and then mm. you took it away and, and rewrote it. Yeah, there's always a lot of like, nah, 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 like versions <laughs> of things before they take any shape. But it's always interesting when you listen back to those things where you're, I don't know, it's interesting seeing what you'll subconsciously sing, even just shape-wise, not necessarily like meaning-wise, but mm. this is like, to me, the like purest part of writing and actually the most vulnerable. That's why I think you need, for me, you need to be writing with someone that you are really comfortable around because just yeah. like singing out melodies that don't exist is like got to be the most vulnerable thing ever. You're yeah. not just like trying to get a verse right and just change it. You're just like singing them out. And I yeah. think that's so great when you get it right but like it can be so daunting so it took me definitely like a good year of co-writing to like get over the fact that like trying to sing an idea to someone despite the fact i can't sing very well as you might hear from the last chorus of this song but uh... <laughs> i really love all these tape drums hopefully we can use them on something else one thing that pete does really well is when you have a kit set up he knows from experience that you will never ever ever be able to replicate that exact sound again so he you do one shots at the end which is that once everything's recorded you know sarah will sit there and play the tape snare at sort of 15 different velocities which is mm. so tedious and boring in the moment but means you can chop it up later and you know yeah be resourceful with those sounds or if you need to replace like certain snare that you can do that and yeah i just love how these sound i just think they're so yeah. nice yeah we've got some guitar in there as well uh, some ring modulator stuff. I think it's a bass running through a ring modulator. Some of the sounds um, are so like ugly in the, uh, in their own right, but they kind of, when they're all together, they just work as this like yeah. big thing. And I think a big part that was again such a like beauty of being at Middle Farm was one of my favorite parts of the whole process. The whole album was we took all these different layers of the pulse and put them on the desk in the control room and then did a, a live pass just through the song where we all had a, you know control over four or five faders and because you know there's so much going on in this you don't really hear them individually it just sounds like a big pulse but you want like different ones to catch your ears at different moments so it's yeah. just like just a nice thing where you're like okay I just want a little bit more of that like bassy layer and then bring it back down and you know, just trying to make that whole thing feel like alive and have like movement and not just something that you yeah. build and loop and slap across yeah. the whole song. Freak Show Industries, Mishby. <laughs> just makes things sound old and Horrible. corrupted and horrid in the way like, yeah, it's kind of like vinyl effects, but gone through a bit of a disaster. Can you illustrate that? Let's hear it. Oh yeah. If I if I put it on the master. Oh god. <laughs> and it's wow. just a, yeah, it's, it's like just... instant remix. But yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it really messes stuff up and has this very like industrial apocalyptic yeah. aesthetic to all the plugins which I like. There's a lot of like tentacles and yeah. It's very strange, but those ones are really fun. They do a couple of really good ones. Yeah. So yeah, big, uh, yeah, big hard yeah, recommend. Big, big fans of them. We had this great conversation with uh, a couple of other people who've been on Take Notes. So um, Maisie Peters and Dodie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Maisie mentioned a gig that she did in Camden in some exactly. tiny venue, which where she was first on. Then I think it was you. So and I then organized Dodie. the gig. Right. At the time, I was working at the Serial Cafe. 
in Camden, right, also in Brick Lane. Where you would go and have some breakfast cereal. This was that. Well, I would go and serve the breakfast right, cereal. Right, right, yes. I was the pourer <laughs> yeah. of the cereal for the people, a job that must be done. Does um, that still exist, that place? I don't think so. Because it was quite a thing. It, it actually was, a- was quite a thing. And do you know what? It was actually such a fun place to work. But I blagged myself in. The two guys that run it are Irish. And um, my CV was just like, music, lol. There was like nothing on it apart from that. And they were like, why would we hire you? And I was like, <laughs> because I'll organize gigs. And I kind of like said it without even thinking. But they had this really great space in Camden. The Brick Lane one was small, but the Camden one was like, you can sit 100 people in there. So I said that. And then obviously a couple of months later, they kind of held me to it. I only ended up organizing about four or five shows, but one of them was Maisie first on for Dodie. And that would have been her first, I think it might have been her first headline show of any description you know right. with her name on the ticket so and did you perform as well that day i think so yeah, yeah. i think yeah, i just, I just put myself on one of them as yeah. well and yeah so weirdly like quite formative and then very shortly after doing those string of gigs because they sold so well Dodie and josh are managing you're obviously like oh it's probably time for us to start thinking about putting a band together and then i was like pete go and talk to Dodie, like right. you know so and then he pulled me in on Dodie's thing because i'd been the one to introduce them and so yeah those serial gigs are actually like weirdly very important. Yeah. They sound legendary. It's a real era. They are legendary. I'm just kicking myself because I wasn't there. Continuing our worldwide tour from the comfort of my house, we go to Melbourne now to join Courtney Bonnet and producer Stella Musgower. Discussing Courtney's third album, Things Take Time, Take Time, we learned about Courtney's passion for archiving, which was great as she was able to treat us to so many of her initial ideas. And we start with the voice note for Turning Green. Obviously, the lyrics are different. A lot of my songs do start like that, like I kind of am mucking around on the guitar and I find a melody that I like and maybe one line or word or phrase, that one seemed to have no no words. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of mumbling, but I think that's also a part of... um, songwriting that I love is I do that and I see what happens and sometimes this weird kind of subconscious um you know sentences come out of your brain and it's actually um it can be very interesting I think I had started writing the song in when I was in America like maybe a of like February 2020 but I think that I had come up with the melody and kind of the chords and um and liked it and recorded it and then completely forgotten about it. And then the day that I started playing it again in December 2020, it just came to my fingers and I started singing it straight away and I thought it was one of those magical songs that you write on the spot that everyone, you know, talks about once in a while it happens. And I was like, oh my God, I just just wrote this song (laughs) in like five minutes. It sounds classic. (laughs) And then I realised I'd just forgotten it. I'd forgotten it and remembered it again. We'll just solo some of your, we kept the idea of the pitched vocals in here. So there's... Sorry that I've been slow, you know it takes a little. 
time for me to show. It's Courtney's natural baritone. I really feel, won't you know? It's very buried. It was much louder in the demo, but we, we kind of remained attached to it, so we kept it in there. Can we solo all the all the vocals? All of them? Absolutely. Here we go. This is everything with the pitch. Sorry that I've been slow. You know it takes a little time for me to show. And then um, David Wrench, who you definitely know. Yeah. Mix engineer extraordinaire and a good friend of mine did um, some great effects on that part on the mix with the the pitched vocals kind of tape echoey mm. really tasteful Yeah, just kind of really dreamy. And the day seems so familiar. And this guitar solo, which basically just felt like, I mean, if you're going to hold off the whole song till you hear a guitar, it's got to be brilliant when it comes in. And I think it's some of my favourite guitar playing I've ever heard. <laughs> And that's basically Simon and myself manipulating a two-track tape machine. So instead of using any pedals, this is bone dry. Well, a bit of drive. But then the tape echo, which pitches and warps right. the tone. And is that as Courtney's playing? You're doing that at yes. the same time? Right. Yeah, and you could hear that while yeah. you were playing, so it was kind of egging you on. Yeah. These weird alien guitar sounds. Fantastic. Stella Musgauer there, telling us about how she augmented the amazing playing of Courtney Barnett. Time for a quick break, but we'll return with highlights from Chet Faker and Hiotis Coyote, as well as a trip into the psychedelic sonic world of John Hopkins. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. 
One of our favorite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favor. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. Next up, John Hopkins brought a whole new dimension to Tape Notes with his approach to the immersive journey that is his new album, Music for Psychedelic Therapy. As well as stories of fortuitous plug-in faults to thoughts on mindfulness and consciousness within music, John talked us through the spaces and processing that shape the sound of the record. We begin with John reflecting on his experience as a musician within a team that ventured deep underground into the Teos Caves in Ecuador. It's a good analogy for how this whole album is different from the others, is that every other album was conceived in a room in London and written just just sitting there in a the studio for weeks, months, years, whereas this one was born down there in the very end, and that's why it sounds so different. So, yeah, in terms of actual recordings down there, it wasn't about capturing music so much. It was uh, capturing the sounds of the place. And one of the other people on the expedition was um, a guy called Mendel Kalen, who did all the field recordings. He had a, a proper, like, Fostex thing to do really high resolution field recordings of everywhere we went to so um i didn't actually have to do that but i my job really was just to absorb it and then to turn that into a piece of music later on but one thing i did do is take a little bose soundlink speaker down there with me and um i had a recording of a crystal bowl like vibrating on a, on an e and um put that on one side of this huge cavernous section of the cave and then mendel had his field recording equipment on the other side so what you're hearing at the start of the track, the Taos Caves track, which is the second track, is the actual like living space of that cave. So that that was the starting point for the record. It actually comes from the real physical place. I think I had an epiphany kind of um reasonably early on in my like solo recording career that you don't have to ask everything from one sound it's like oh why don't the trebles come from something else or why doesn't the bass come from something else or why doesn't the attack come from something else you see you know i used to just try and spend ages programming one sound that does everything and of course you don't need to do that um you can make it sound like it's one sound but actually no one sound would ever do all of those things so that was once a piano <laughs> <laughs> as, are, as are many of these sounds This is the low element, and then there's a high element. Um, so if I skip forward to where that's louder, you can hear there's this high element in there. And then there was another sort of fluttery sound, which and to give it some life in the top end. Mm. 
So that on its own, sorry, sounds like. And it's moving around a lot, isn't it? It moves around a lot, yeah. And then there was its accompanying sound, which was made on Ableton's vocoder originally. I think it's probably a vocoding of this ring mod sound. There's a lot of notes in there, actually. Yeah. Kind of, I like this idea of using like quite abstract harmonics within these sounds. So if you put that with the high and the low, they sound like they live together, like they mm. are part of the same organism. So yeah, so let's talk a bit more about Dan's contribution. So he has this synth called a Fismo, which was a really obscure synth that a company called Ensonic made in the 90s. And it was never even, apparently the, the internal architecture, it was never actually finished because it was really complicated. Transwave synthesis, that's something I don't know much about. But he got really into learning how to use this thing and generating these incredible sounds. I think it's this. He kind of generates notes at random, like that, so he would just be playing a chord and this would all be happening, just based on the, the way he's programmed it. Right. Quite unusual that a synth like this would have been made then and no one really knew what to make of it and it was never really a commercial success at all, but I think some synth obsessives still look for them. And, yeah. yeah. So there's that and then there's the same kind of thing, but played. Yeah, so this is the Fismo synth, but played back through speakers that he's hung in the trees. And then he's standing in the middle and recording the results on his phone and sending them to me. So you're hearing like synths process through the woods, basically right. in a similar way that the um, this crystal bowl was processed by mm. the cave. I like this idea of like using natural spaces as processing. This sound was created by, um, I was using this plugin that, that it's really, really cheap and doesn't really work properly and starts occasionally, about once every two weeks, just starts generating random harmonics in these little, like this sounds like a really complex um, series of notes, but actually it was a something that was wrong in the plugin, which is a pitch shifting plugin and stumbled across this sound as I do many by just playing with it. And then the next day when I came back and listened again, it had completely changed because the plugin was working correctly that day. So I was like, I've lost it. <laughs> I was devastated. And then, so I, this sound you're hearing now was lost. And then about two weeks later, it started doing it again. So I, that time I printed it straight away. Right. And now it's in there. It's a really important sort of sparkle on top of everything else and I've had a I've talked about this before in interviews but I have a kind of long-term obsession with the way sun lands on water and the way that light reflects off all the movement within the water and this is for me as a sort of attempt to create that in sound mm. when you have psychedelic journeys and when you meditate for years you start to discover the what I think of as the witness, there's the part of you that is, it's not your thoughts, it's the part that witnesses your thoughts, and that's obviously the basic principle of mindfulness. Um, 
But then if there is a witness to your thoughts, what is that witness? And that's consciousness. And consciousness seems to have its own ideas about things and seems to be open to things coming through. Um, so I kind of identify more with that than with the thoughts. And so the musical processes have become entirely governed by that. I've completely shut out the the problem solving egoy bit and just yeah, and that's how you end up with this sort of album. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely fascinating to see how you create this this world. Because it is a kind of world that you've created. Yeah, I record. think of it as a world and I think you know, it feels like this almost like a superpower to be able to create all these sounds and a world and then with the aid of a psychedelic medicine to actually enter that world. It's like you build your place and then you walk into it and it's all you're able to feel and experience it. And that's why it was important to test it in those states as well. So like every month or so in the last three months of writing and recording of this, I would have a, a psychedelic ceremony and, and listen to it and see what it would do and see, just make sure that it would work. And the first one, there were huge things that really jumped out as wrong that you have to, you almost had to experience it in that state to realize how wrong, but, um, Equally, the bits that were right really shone, so it was clear what I needed more of and what I needed less of by entering it on, on that deeper level. The truly immersive process of John Hopkins there. Now, we turn to Nick Murphy, otherwise known as Chet Faker, who joined us from his studio in New York, armed with numerous versions of the tracks that eventually became his latest album, Hotel Surrender. Sharing stories of studio rules to live by, Nick unraveled some of the most decisive elements, both musical and non-musical, within his songs. But he starts us off by discussing unwanted birthday presents. That's great. I, th- I don't think we've had that phrase before. Mum got me Ableton too. Mum got yeah. me Ableton uh, uh, too. Yeah, <laughs> for my birthday, and I didn't want it. That's the funny thing. I was like, oh, what the f- what the fuck is this? You know, and that was before it had become the sort of new. Uh, it's like the third or fourth industry standard now, but it was just this random thing. And anyone who, who uses Ableton will know that there's so many ways to do one thing. So it was just a total, I was like, what is this thing? You know, but uh, to my point, I have uh, Ableton projects, you know, from back then, from when I was 15, I've kept them all. And then between having all the projects and I try and bounce a master file a stereo bounce of every project that I use. Even if it sucks, I just bounce it so I and then I keep it all in iTunes, right? And in my iTunes, I only have my music in iTunes. It's purely a file management thing. And then I'll have all different playlists in it. And just kind of at my leisure, I'll go through and if I think something's got great drums, I'll throw that in a playlist that says drums. And then so if I'm having a day where I'm I'm just like feeling groggy i'm not really vibing but um i've got this song and i'm like this song needs good drums on that day i can uh sift through past inspirations you know and go through these projects and be like oh these drums that's about the same tempo this will work go and find the project open it up grab those drums and import them into the new one so i'm sort of maximizing my inspiration i don't always have to be inspired And I'm also making sure that past inspirations aren't wasted because they weren't going into a hit song at the time, you know. But that was the last thing I added because I had it without that and it felt a little faceless, which maybe doesn't make much sense, but I often think of us, songs need to have a face. 
so you have to give them an identity or a signifier and it's often good to have it at the beginning of a track because you know there are those songs I think everyone knows that the feeling when a song comes on and at one second in you know it because there's a kind of sonic face to it it's just like boom the downbeat and it's like oh like yep I know this song I love this song and um I try to do that with well at least with like a single or something it's like I it needs to have a face, and I felt like with that turned off, it's cool, but it's like, eh, you know, but you add that on top, yeah. and you're like, oh, I know exactly what song this is straight away, you know. The whole album was done on a U87 into an API Pre, which is like, sounds fantastic but something about this song it just i don't know it's i've noticed with dancey stuff sometimes or something with rhythmic if the vocal is too full and has too much body it kind of kills the the rhythm you know because i think when it comes to dance music the vocal is actually supposed to support the song as an instrument more rather than the other way around so i use this i have this uh super cheap realistic uh, electret piano that is screws off and is uh, powered by a, a single double A battery <laughs> which I bought at like a garage sale when I was 19 and uh, this is what I use for vocals on all of Built on Glass and all of uh, Thinking in Textures but I right. use it on, on Feel Good as well at home so, so you can tell it sounds like shit but it's also it's kind of whispery and I don't know it just fitted the track better I actually have this funny rule I do, I'm not allowed to have poly synthesizers in my studio <laughs> Because I just get lost. You just, I think people waste so much time searching for, you know, new sounds. I can't think of it. There are a lot of great songs with great synth sounds, but most of them are maybe, if a great synth sound is like maybe 30% of a track. Of course, with dance music, it's different. But I found I would just spend hours, you know, tweaking different patches and do a million different sounds. And it's, it's like, man, it does just pick one. You know, get on with the song. So in yeah. here, I have I only have one of everything. I have a one piano. I have a Rhodes. Actually, I do have like four drum machines. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like one vocoder, one electric guitar, one bass guitar. And I used to have one mono synth bass, but I now have two. But I bought that after I finished the record as a treat for myself. So I find that uh, the less options you have... You kind of just get on with the song and you work with what you've got instead of just waste. There's so I've wasted so much time looking for the right sound. And I learned that. It was one of the a really valid lesson in about 2016 or 2017, which was when I'd sort of things, I you know, the Chet Faker thing had done really well. I, I was in a really great place and I made a bit of money. And I basically bought every instrument I ever wanted to own. And actually, probably more. It was ridiculous. And I had my apartment filled with shit. I had drums. 
synths, you know, I bought like a Neve desk, you know, I just literally, it was just like all the gear you've ever wanted. And that was one of the most inefficient times of my life creatively. I didn't finish anything. Hard-earned wisdom there from Chet Faker. Now, for our final selection from Season 9, we turn to Hiatus Coyote Simon Perrin and Bender, lifting the lid on their album Mood Valiant. Looking back across the record that took them all the way from their shared house of musicians to a shopping centre recording studio in the heart of Rio with legend Arthur Verakai, the trio share their thoughts on consolidating the wealth of ideas that forms their music. But to start, here's Simon explaining his way of making his polyrhythmic parts slightly more accessible in the track Rosewater. The initial idea actually came from a thought that I had years and years ago from um, seeing a bunch of musicians playing with polyrhythms in time. And they introduced me to quintuplets and, and odd, odd rhythms. And I was trying to figure out a way to make it more accessible and make it feel like it was in four. So I, I thought if I had two fives, I could group them in four, four and two. So it, it would, you'd feel that it was more of a four, four, two thing as opposed to a five and a five thing. And that was what the initial piano part was. Three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, one, two. That's how I was hearing it initially. And I didn't really think too much about putting the four against it. But then when we started playing it as a band, like this was one of the first rehearsals I think that we had. And Pez. That's a sick Pez. One, two, three, four, one, two. two. Yeah, this is the first time we heard it. Yeah, we just started jamming on it at the studio. I love taking those small fragments of an idea and then fleshing it out into a song and it becomes this beautiful thing that everyone else can contribute to. Sometimes talking to other musicians and it's something I say to, you know, younger musicians that will come and talk after a gig or something about the process. And, like, it's most of the time instead of taking a song that's kind of a bit boring and then trying to make it super weird, a lot of the time it's trying to take something that feels, like, a bit challenging or a bit confusing and then trying to make that something that feels really natural and like meaningful and like yeah like a song and um you know there's there's a lot of the processes trying to do something that you can't do yet um, yeah and that you're a bit crap at for like a while and then you're like oh actually maybe that thing that you're trying to do that's excessive and this thing i'm trying to do excessive if i just kind of modulate a little bit then it kind of lines up with that thing that you're trying to do and then it starts to get a bit consolidated And before yeah. you went to Brazil, had you already sent Arthur the song so he had time to prepare it? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. We yeah. Did. He, he, um, he wrote back to us and he said, I'm... What did oh, say it, exactly? it, was it was like a like, week before we left. We got this email back from him after he'd been sent this recording and sat with it for a while and he sent back this cryptic email that just said, Hi, guys. I'm having quite a bit of problems uh, trying to figure out... Uh, what to arrange for this. All the best, Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> it was so open-ended. It was, it was like, does that mean he's like not doing it? 
Like, it's just filling us with this sense of absolute dread. Like, we're about to get in a plane. He's just not, like, it's not happening. Or And then the thing he ended up writing was not really, like, the thing that any of us thought he was going to write, but then it ended up just being so awesome. I didn't know what he was going to write. I just knew it was going to be good. Uh, we, we, we gave very, very vague, in, vague instructions. It's like maybe a bunch of stuff here, and then that's the part of the song that he didn't put any strings and horns, and he I put them kind of in all the other places, which I think was... Genius. I don't know if that was a communication genius, breakdown man. or if he just was like, nah, you, you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But, I, want to think, I want to think that he just did that. Either way, it, it worked out great. Yeah, it was good. And so the first time you heard these parts was when the musicians performed them and were recorded mm-hmm. for the yeah. song. So can we hear these either isolated yeah, or... Yeah, absolutely. Does he hear the strings? Parts. Oh. Yeah, so you the got, first... You've got to hear them isolated. The, I think the, so first thing was the, well, the first thing was the horns <laughs> um, that went down because I kind of did the horns That's first right. in the room. Like I think it was like a six-piece, seven-piece, I think, horn section. Yeah. So this is the first thing we heard was... It took the engineer about half an hour to get all these sounds in a good space as well. Yeah, it all happened very quickly. It was insane. And the guys, I think it was two tracks and then they're out of there. Two attempts, it was crazy. Wow, so presumably all the hairs on the back of your necks are all standing up at this point, hearing this for the first time. Yeah, Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty pretty mind-blowing. And, like, there was such a good section. They were really And the strings, outrageous. oh, my God. When the so, strings yeah. came in, there was just magic, man. So we were already flipping out because we experienced the whole horn take, and then this happened, and we are like, oh, my God. <laughs> I think, like, a good piece of knowledge that would pass on to me when I was young... I was like hanging in with my mom and some of her friends and they're pretty experienced percussion players, some of them. And um, this one guy that I looked up to a lot, I was playing like djembe just with all these adults and just trying to like just smash the shit out of it. Um, and he comes up to me and was quietly and was like, you know, instead of playing so much, you should like listen to, <laughs> it's very simple, but listen to people around and, and react to them rather than um, trying to play your own thing, you know. So listen and react, I guess, would be a piece of advice. That, um, that I live by all the time, you know, if I'm stuck for an idea, it's just listen to everyone else and then where do you fit in in that space, you know, that's for a um, performative aspect, I guess, or improvising aspect. And I think for me as a drummer, like that's very important for drummers to have that openness and willingness to, yeah, definitely just listen and react. So much to learn from Hiatus Coyote. Excellent stuff. Right, thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. We've only scratched the surface of our favourite bits from the season in this Best Of. There's so much more musical goodness, inspiration and wisdom to be had in the full episode, so do check them out if you haven't already. Thank you to all of the artists and producers that gave us such fascinating insights into their world. Links to all of the albums featured in Season 9 can be found in the show notes. Season 10 is on its way, featuring the likes of Bastille, Gang of Views and Alt-J, among many others. We're also hoping to bring you some very special live shows, so keep your eye on our socials, newsletter and my preambles for details about how you can grab yourself a ticket and be there for tape notes in person. But for now, I'll leave you in the capable hands of Chet Faker, telling us about his vision of a cowboy narrator for his track, Oh Me, Oh My. So I always had this like visual, this kind of ridiculous cowboy coming out of the 
desert. And I actually had a bunch of uh, people record different um, monologues. I had my uncle. Well, first I actually, I tried to reach out and get Sam Elliott to do it. Um, right. I thought, oh yeah, it's a great idea. But in hindsight, I'm like, that guy must get a million people a day trying to get him to do the cowboy voice. So anyway, that didn't happen, but no hard feelings, Mr. Elliot. <laughs> and then I, yeah, a friend of mine who used to work at Rockstar Games hooked me up with a buddy of his who had done the, he was one of the characters in um, Grand Theft Auto. I don't remember the name of his character, but it's like, apparently it's quite a popular character that people like. So I had him do a bunch of monologues and things like that. Yeah, this was Scott's one. Music does something. <laughs> So I had this guy most don't know what it does doing a bunch of them in the early versions just accept it as the sky is blue no one particular person which was kind of what I was looking for knows. right it don't make much of any sense <laughs> super cowboy shit but then once I heard it I was like I don't I don't know it just it wasn't it was exactly what I was looking for but it wasn't I was wrong you know what I thought I was looking for so then I started asking uh, my uncle to do it i thought oh maybe it needs an australian accent you know and that was pretty good but still something was wrong and i just kept I, I kept getting all these people to try it and i was getting annoyed with them because it didn't sound like my reference i'm like no like this <laughs> and they were like well what are you trying to do i'm like it's like um serge gainsberg or something the way that he would talk you know the beginning of his track it was almost like i just i just didn't want to do it you know <laughs> even though it was my idea and clearly I was meant to be doing it. So I had this kind of moment where I just tried so many things and it was like, well, I've written this thing. It very clearly needs to be me telling it because it's a meaningful story to me and, and it came from me. So I was sort of like begrudgingly accepted. I'm like, oh, well, I think it was one of the last things it did in the album. I was like, fuck it, then fine, I'll do it, you know? <laughs> Music does something. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Now one particular person climbed right through that window. But so far looking, you forgot what it was he was missing in the first place. Like I said, music does something. After a while, you realized you might well be starving to death reading a cookbook. And there ain't no amount of thinking can fix thinking. So you climb back through into the here and into the now. He checked in, heart and soul, to a place they call Hotel Surrender. Get out the way, I'm coming through.